0: want to get your input on you know where you see the state of the union with you know a practice sale exits and i'm looking primarily at you know the the solo doc uh, or solo doc with an associate maybe there's a a partnership there but it's a small practice um uh, what what do you what do you view as the current models uh for dentists in that category who wish to sell today
1: well i mean i'm assuming you're assuming they're not selling fractional shares, but selling out, right? Selling out, correct. Okay. Well, I mean, there's really only two or three. I mean, you know, uh, are you talking about the legal uh, status of the sale, like an asset sale uh, as opposed to a stock sale? or, or Not so much. Or I'm, I'm,
0: I'm really looking at um, you know, who, who, who the buyers are today.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, again, I mean, I think probably the most common sale is to another doctor. I mean, even though that's decreasing, it is the most common sale. Uh, there's a problem there, though. Um, you know, if we if we look at an average practice, which is doing $650,000 a year, um, you know, about a 67%, 75% overhead, you know, through four employees, 20 or 30 new patients a month, uh, just kind of an average practice. Those are real easy to sell. I mean, you'll get lenders to sell, I mean, to to if, if a kid's been out for six months, a year, something like that, they can borrow $500,000. Uh, so a $600,000 a year uh, practice is pretty easy to sell. The problem is uh, we're producing more and more, and so we limit the number of buyers from an individual sale. So that the, I mean, you know, you, if you're doing a million, that practice is probably going to sell pretty close to 750000 $800,000 it gets harder to get banks to loan on that. And, and so, uh, again, you know, the individual is probably the number one, but number two is going to be either corporate or DSO buyers. So, let, yes, yeah, so let's
0: distinguish between uh, corporate and DSO, uh, between those, those, those two groups. How much differentiation
1: do you see there? Um, I, I see very little. Okay. I mean, I, I you know DSO has been around since 1975. I mean, the the entity itself isn't isn't unique. Uh, in fact, we've probably called uh, like Harlan a national corporate you know entity, which strictly it's not. You know, so I, I think you know the the DSO is just a buzzword today, where uh, you know. Originally, it was designed so a non-dentist could own a dental practice, Uh, but it's changed because we have a lot of doctors that are are wanting to do DSO models, Mm -hmm. and uh, truly, it it may not be the best model if you're going to sell the group of practices. It's much easier to sell or remove yourself from that entity in the form of just multiple corporations owning multiple practices, even though they operate much like a DSO or uh, a national deal. There are a lot of them out there that just have three or four offices and they do pretty well. Three or four offices that are, that are geographically in, yeah. in prox, proximity. Probably. Yeah. yeah, probably. I mean, you know, the, <clears throat> the problem's always going to be, you know, just getting employees and doctors and, and, you know, that high turnover kind of thing. So you're always dealing with that. So, um, yeah, the proximity makes a big difference for, um uh, You know three to five practices so uh
0: define a little bit more who the the corporate buyers are
1: well i mean you know if you look at the in the strictest sense of a corporation where we're not we don't have a management service agreement between an owner and the practice it's a corporate practice i'm seeing a lot of just entrepreneurs i mean in the most general term Uh, A doctor who's had a really good uh, run in a solo practice, uh, has multiple doctors. Uh, Profit margins are probably, uh, overhead models are probably less than 63%, something like that. Their overhead's about, you know, about that much. Uh, Be great if it was lower, but that'll work with that. So they think, okay they've got this bucket list mind and they, they're kind of bored with just doing the day-to-day stuff and they open that second practice and, and they usually struggle mightily with that second yeah. practice. Right. I mean the first practice was driven by the personality, charisma, and horsepower of that original doctor. Not as much by systems and protocols and then they, they go into this second deal and they realize okay I've got to reconstruct my model so that I can be an absentee owner and, and have the same culture but have also the same business model that will, will continue to, to work. Once they get past the second one, they can pretty well add as many as they want. How, how, many, how many do you see or do you think uh, don't make it past that second one? A majority. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if it's a bucket list for you, like I want to I write a book, I want to be a speaker, I want to have multiple doctors, I want to have multiple offices. I mean, average is average because it's easy. I mean, if you show up and work and, you know, are semi-engaged, you're going to be average. But those kind of practices that can duplicate their success, because it's a whole new learning process. They think they can, they can live off what they've done before. They have to change. And so there are very few doctors that do that. <clears throat> now, on the other side, the doctors that are buying these practices, I mean, uh, they're buying into this or selling their practices. I mean, the whole DSO corporate kind of deal really appeals to a doctor who's always felt that they just – all they want to do is the dentistry. Right. You know, I I don't want to deal with the crazy staff stuff. I don't want to deal with the crazy – I just want to do the dentistry. And that's a shame. So, not what it takes. Uh, Yeah. Uh, A lot of of, uh, solo docs today
0: are looking at – Try, try to attempt to do models that they bring in uh, an associate uh, trial partner you've you, you, you had that you've yep. s- you show people how to do that model for years and how to do it right and how many people do it do it incorrectly um, <clears throat> what what are some of the, the the I mean there's a number of issues that can come into play that, that don't make that work but I think the biggest one uh, and you can correct me or, or add to this is that once again that that senior owner that senior doctor uh is not prepared in many ways to even bring on that that associate um, right. it, and if that's even the case then there's other issues that come to place and uh again this is this is this is off the record and not going into anything i'm writing but uh you know uh, our mutual friend guy nash by mike mike, mike mike thank you so much what a what a great great couple uh, guy in petty are, but you know he 's he's in that position right now where he's he 's sold a, a portion of his practice he 's wanting to get to fifty percent with his current partner uh, and then he 's got to then uh, figure out how to replace himself with the other fifty percent because his current partner of course can 't afford to buy out the whole practice That's that 's a problem right so, so so if someone has so someone 's built a practice uh, of, of that size uh, with uh, himself being the the driver uh, probably outproducing right. his current partner, you know, two to one, um, and he wants to, to exit, uh, t- t- trying to put those pieces in a, in, in, in a, in a place is, is, is difficult for most.
1: Right. I mean, I, I, I still believe you can, you can make more money selling fractional shares of your practice. The problem is surviving the leadership role and management role you'd have to take on to do that. And, and so a, a lot of doctors will go, well, I want to just sell him a third. And I'm going I'll oh, just sell him half, and then you only have to do this one more time right you know or right. and, and so they don't realize how difficult it is to find two compatible people that that can produce and and then the next sale that that no one ever thinks about is that if you did fractional sales let's say you sold fifty percent of it you're, you don't have to lose control you, you will not lose control your your operating agreement will still make you managing partner if you want it even if you just had three percent but Again, what happens is at the point that they decide to sell, if the other partner just looks cross-eyed at a potential buyer mm-hmm. and goes, there's no way, there's not a hockey puck's chance that you're going to ever make it here, I'll make sure, uh, it makes it difficult to sell it. So It's, real, it's an imperative, almost imperative that the existing partner has to find the next partner to buy him out. Yeah, no, that, that, that totally makes sense there.
0: On the, uh, with, with, with DSOs and providing a lot of liquidity to the larger practices, I mean, that's, that's been obviously a, a blessing and a curse to dentistry. Uh, you, you exited
1: um, that way with, with Heartland, um, but you- but you, Well, no, actually, I didn't. Okay, I exited by selling partnerships, and then two years you, later, my partners- They sold. Heartland. Okay. Because they saw the writing of the wall that no one could afford right. you know, a million-dollar-a-month practice. Right. So, so, so you, had, you had, at that time, three other, I believe, three other partners- I he actually uh or, or, it was two others one, uh one, we at one time I did have three yeah one of them is a horror story I'll yeah, yeah, i, I yeah I remember but, I remember I remember okay yeah so 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 for you for
0: you when when you're going through that process and bringing on your partners um was how how, how difficult was that for you did you have did you did you have some some outside the one that was a horror story did you have some other uh, missteps along the way or, or no. was it was it easier, was it easier to find a recruit because of your location in McKinney yes. okay that's a, that's a big part of it right
1: yeah I mean I mean I think a lot of doctors uh in you know back at the time when when uh you had these superstar deals that these you know people like Whitehall would would interview yeah you most of those people if you took them took their practice away and put them in another state in another location they couldn't make it again Mm -hmm. they have no idea how difficult this is so i'd gone through 14 associates before i started doing that and then once i did it i pretty well refined it to a point that i i just didn't make any mistakes now were we best friends no we were not best friends we respected each other and we were friendly but I can't remember, I, you know, I just, I worked when they didn't and they worked when I didn't and we had different interests and, uh, but it worked out real well. So, so 14 associates
0: before you sold the first fractional interest. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we sold the first fractional
1: interest, then you sold what a third, a Um, fourth? Yes. I sold a third. Uh, I mean, I'd always, I had a facility for a three doctor. So I, obviously I had that vision of having three doctors. Um, but I, I was also looking at this, at the idea that if I sold a third, that when I sold the next third, all of that money would go to me instead of, if, if I'd sold 50, 50 and we needed a third doctor, I'd have to split that, right. that, that investment strategy. But I also was, was looking at, I had just purchased a building uh, in land, mm-hmm. and land. And so by having these fractional shares, That wasn't included in the sale, so they were actually, uh, you know, paying, helping me pay for an asset that, you know, I would receive all the equity run up. And also the next sale, the value of that next third would have been, well, it was. It was over double what the first guy paid. Right, right. So so, what prompted you after
0: after fourteen associates? And by by the way, was there an average amount of time that the the various what was the average?
1: Fifteen to twenty four months.
0: So so, after going through, and and did you have more than one
1: with you at one time, or always? Uh, I actually just one. One You're right. I hadn't thought about that. I never thought about that. But no, I never had more than one associate. It seemed like when I finally started doing the sale, I always had one associate and one partner, and then again the next guy would come in. But I also owned two other practices at that time when, when I was doing it, and what the what prompted me to get away from the model was that, um, I mean, I, I actually felt like there probably only, for me, less than 10% of a graduate class that would be the kind of doctor I would want. It had nothing to do with, you know, male or female or, or grades. It just, I needed somebody that had a fire in their belly that wanted ownership and wanted to uh, grow a practice, they, were, they were, had a great self-image, they were, had great people skills, and they were already self-motivated. To get that kind of doctor, they will not stay around very long, mm-hmm. okay? And then, and then uh, if you get somebody that's been an employee for four, five, or six years, you, you probably got the wrong person. I mean, no. they're, they're, not gonna, they're not gonna even come close to duplicating the horsepower and charisma that you had that made their practice successful, I need somebody to re- to replace that. I mean, to, to add to it, to, I guess, compensate for my, uh, the things I don't do well, but also complement the culture that was already there. So.
0: So you had two other practices. Um, were those, lo- were those, those located yep. relatively nearby? I mean, within the, the metropolitan, the, metro, the North, North Texas area. Yeah, one area. was in
1: Frisco, which was 10 miles away. And uh, the other one was in, um, Actually, it was in Shreveport or uh, Mosier City. Really, uh, uh, it just so happened that a Texas doctor wanted a practice there, and so that's I ended up doing that one next. And then about that time, I expanded my office and I added another office in McKinney. So I remember that. Yeah. So so, it just, so,
0: these, so these outline outline practices, Frisco and Mosier City. Yeah. those came more out of out of your connection. Uh, be, through to Through dental schools and you're speaking and summit management and, you, and, right. and someone would come to you and say, "Hey, I want to open it. and so you, you you look at the person first and then also where they wanted to set up and then you decide hey it's this I love to do this I love to, to mentor I love to see people grow right i'll, I'll go ahead and invest my time and capital into this effort that was is that kind of their you
1: know, right it is and then yeah. then you know back in the early 2000s you know which was later you know uh, like mm-hmm. two thousand one through two thousand and nine. Most of the practices I ended up owning were were distress practices that mm-hmm. in different parts of the country, since again, we had a coaching company, it would made it easy to manage those and but I, what was really interesting on these multiple practices uh, and, and I think this is kind of the problem with the DSO model, uh, or even corporate, is that um, these 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 dSOs buy practices. Uh, most of the doctors that want to sell their practices are doctors that don't like doing the management and stuff. And then they keep that same doctor who, whether the practice was good or just average is the number one reason it did well, but it's also the number one reason they think they can grow it. Mm. And they keep that doctor there. I mean, that just doesn't sound like a good plan. And what happened to me was when I had a bunch of practices on the West coast and and different areas, um, there is a point in time, Where, when you're an absentee owner, the value that you supply to that practice becomes arbitrary, and at some point they're going to think them. You know, at first they're excited about, okay, well, you took two or three thousand dollars out of what was made, and then they got to keep the rest, and the practice was growing, and we were adding the expertise and stuff. But at some point, the check they write to you isn't worth what they perceive the value you're bringing, and at that point you enter kind of an adversarial role. Uh, Pacific uh, had that happen about 10 or 15 years ago when they got sued by 300 other doctors. Their contracts weren't good enough and, they, and Pacific lost. And so, again, that's a real weird situation. And uh, you think you've got problems with one practice? Uh, a bunch of them can get to be. So I ended up selling those practices um, after about 15 to 24 months. I mean, it was set up to do that where they would buy it back they would get a good deal. I'd make right. 300, 400% on my investment and I didn't have to worry about that. That, perc- you know. that perception. Yeah. So,
0: okay. Yeah, so hey, I th- yeah, I think I, yeah, so for bad. a minute I was, I was lost with that. Now I get it. So, so you help someone set up and all that goodwill and everything you do on the front end, which, which you and I would agree has a lot of value. Yeah. Um, it, after, after a little while, it looks like, well, wait, this guy's not here. I'm doing all the work. That, right. Yeah, that, yeah. That, I
1: mean, at some point in I mean, any absentee owner is going to face that, and so you have to be real proactive about setting up your contracts and mm-hmm. picking the right kind of doctor that can live with that. I was picking doctors that could have gone out on their own and made it. I just made it easier for them. That yeah. kind of doctor, they, they're they going to want to be the alpha. You know? so, yeah. So,
0: yeah. so you set it up from the beginning to make it a relatively short, short stick. Uh, now, that's changed, though.
1: I mean, you know, we're Roy. talking 20 years ago. And it's changed. I mean, currently we're having, we passed the 50% mark. I mean, there are more females now than males mm-hmm. in dental school. I mean, I think it's 51%, but, but if you go back and track for the last 15 years, only 32% of the females are buying practice owners are going to be owners in a dental practice and only 67% of the males. And so that's really less than 50% of the graduates for dental school are going to be owners. Now that's generational uh It's economic. It's you know whatever it is. It means that for the first time, these DSOs corporations, multiple doctor offices now have an un- unlimited supply yeah. of, this. and so that wasn't the case back when I was doing this. Back then, ninety five percent all the doctors that graduated were owners. Yeah, no, and they didn't wait real long to be owners. Right, that's right. And, and so it's a whole different marketplace. And so I, I you know, since you're trying to make, uh, a, a current deal, I think most doctors kind of have, uh, a reference point. And so if you're talking to doctors that are over 55 years of age, their reference point was back at a time where 95% of the people were owners and that that was a great thing to do and have and be, and, and that's changed. So you're going to find the pool of buyers to diminish, de- be diminishing, uh, And I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about this either, but that diminishing pool of buyers, the ones that just want to work for corporate and have a good job with good benefits and not have to worry about some of these things, uh, is really fueled by corporations and DSOs uh, buying up practices. And the prices today are higher than they've ever been. Yes. I mean, it's, you know, it's. Gotten higher and higher, but that's not going to last.
0: But, okay, that was my, that was my next question. So let's could we talk a little bit about that? Where, how long does this window last? I mean, no crystal ball, but what and, and 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 where you know what's what what's causing it to run out? When 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 the corporation's DSO is going to quit buying? Are they going go to go do de novo? Or are we just going to saturate the marketplace? What, it's what already see?
1: happened, and and so again, if 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 you go back and look at 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 uh, maybe you know the closer we can get to our model the better. But what we need to remember is if it's been done before, then that timeline from, you know, seeing corporate practices, you know, it's not corporate practices or DSOs that are growing 20% a year. It's multiple doctor practices. And in multiple doctor practices, there are DSOs and, and corporate okay. deals. But again, if you look at pharmacy, it took almost uh, 18 years for people like eckerds and cvs and stuff like that start going why would we want to buy a mom and pop Mm -hmm. business with no retail sales crappy systems and you know we can just do our own big box stores and and, you know that vision was the same way medicine was the same way i mean hospitals used to be not for profit they are all for profit now so the the dso the 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 image or the shadow of a DSO or a large corporation or or hospitals and if you don't have hospital privileges in that hospital you can't do surgery or practice and stuff so again you've seen doctors pay drop 50 percent in the last 15 years so uh, yeah I don't think this is going to go on forever I think probably there's a window and unless something drastically changes and you look at you know millennials gen x uh z's I mean the trend is away from uh, that ownership and and staying uh, an employee for a great corporation. So I think that DSOs and corporations will always be around. I don't think the ones that are here today will be around forever. I mean, but yeah, I, th- I think probably ten years so, would be my timeline. Okay. So, you know, I see, keep pushing that out just where it does not going to matter yeah, right. when it comes to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll be pushing that.
0: Of, <laughs> here, so yeah, know. right. Exactly. But, exactly. But, uh, uh, so, so where, where do you see the, fee-for-service we'll call it boutique practices they're they're out there today there's there sure. it's, it's got to be the right demographic it's got to be the right doctor it's got to have the right kind of marketing a lot of things have to fall into place uh what what percentage can, can you give a percentage of what what do you think that is today uh just you know off the cuff and, and, and well and, and i know
1: I, i'm from the ada i mean even if you consider a boutique practice to be a fee-for-service practice mm-hmm. i mean and it's not necessarily but i mean
0: well, well, yeah, will well, well, we'll, we'll, we'll describe what you th- what you think consists or comprises a fee-for-service practice today. What are the different... What,
1: okay, what yeah, I mean, like? the fee-for-service practice, that's, again, that's a holdover from 15, 20 years ago. Fee-for-service would be, you know, you're not taking any mm-hmm. managed care. But, you know, I have doctors go, well, I don't take any managed care. I said, you don't take Delta? Oh, I take Delta, but I don't do managed care. you mm-hmm. know, just kind of go, you know, you kind of roll your eyes and are you just stupid? Uh, but... The ADA says that only six percent of the dental practices in the United States are fee for service. Now, in that fee for service, you're going to find boutique practices. But also in that six or seven percent, you're gonna find doctors that are older, maybe in their late sixties or seventies, they just don't want to deal with insurance. And you know, if they only take home eighty, a hundred thousand dollars a year, they're fine with that. So that that that's Most doctors, when you say that 7% or 6% being uh, fee for service, think that's a rarefied area. But I'm betting that over 50% are practices you wouldn't even consider wanting to be like. Right? I mean, you know, so it's not just great practices. Mm -hmm. Will there always be fee for service practices? Sure. But it's probably not going to be you, right? Or me. Or, you know, it's just, I mean, the trend is away from that. And, Again, this is just seat-of-the-pants stuff, but, you know, the doctors who I talk to most are the boutique practices that say, I'll do whatever you want. This just isn't working. The hmm. All of the great institutions that teach boutique-style cosmetic dentistry are finding that people that do take PPOs are taking those courses, and they offer the same services that, that – uh, that these boutique practices are uh, offering. I, I think it's interesting because those same doctors that have the boutique practices, so in an audience of of 100 doctors, you might have three, possibly four, that consider themselves to be in that rarefied area. And I'll give them an example of, I said, you know, actually, as we sit here, we're kind of seeing the death of specialties. And, you know, in a way, I mean, well, let's, let's take prosthodontist. I mean, Sure. And they're all going, yeah, those guys are idiots. They can't do anything. I'm going, you, you are the next prosthodontist, the boutique practice. Mm, It'll exactly. be a challenge. And so in Dallas, Texas, there's probably four or five that I would say are like that. Now, what do they look like? They're older doctors that used to have big practices. They, uh, they socialize with the mayor of Dallas yeah. and the senators, uh, they have box seats at the cowboy game and know the players. And I mean, you know, they, you have to have that, you know, to, to make that happen in these big cities. But I don't think it's, I don't think you're losing by taking a PPO and still having fee for service. But a lot of times demographics will dictate what type of practice will actually survive in an area. And it's not just picking what you want to do. It's picking that location. So so do, you, so do you think a hybrid model with, um, call it boutique
0: or, or yeah. phenomenal fee for service and, and some PPO or selected PPO, do you think that's, that's a model yep. that has sustainability?
1: Well, and it, I, I'm assuming that insurance companies will be around. And, and I don't paint the insurance companies necessarily as necessarily the bad guy. I mean, uh, I went to the, uh, I'm having a senior moment, what it was last October, not this, you know, we're yeah. doing this now. So it's been almost a year but 67% of all the insurance companies were thinking about dropping dental insurance. Okay. Now it's the employer that's causing the problem about reimbursement and stuff. They're not willing to pay Mm -hmm. for an insurance. Okay. So insurance companies are going to try to make a profit too. It's not like they're dictating what they'll cover or not cover. The people that have bought that policy have dictated that. And so there's this double standard in the minds of dentists where they're, they're going, Oh, these, these PPOs are horrible, but I don't think I've ever talked to a dentist who, who, on their own volition, when they went out and bought medical insurance, <laughs> didn't buy a PPO. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, I, 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 think, I think price is always going to be um, a factor in the way people choose things. I mean, if we look at an average consumer, if it's $500 or more, they can't afford it without going to savings or borrowing the money. That's the average person we're going to bump into. So, and in the, the boutique practices, I, I, I can't tell you the doctor's name because it would be embarrassing to him, but he was involved with American Academy of Cognitive Dentistry, but had moved his practice from one location where he did pretty well to a high income area where he yeah. was like 200000 $250,000, you know, all the way around him for three miles. And he couldn't understand why he was going bankrupt. And I'm going, well, if your income level is over 100000 a year, you grew up in a middle class family that brushed and flossed, you've always gone to the dentist, you uh, have I any more than that, you have probably fixed any problem you had and you probably didn't have any problems in the first place. So that supply and demand economic view. When I graduated in 74, the decayed Michigan filled teeth was 16.1 for average adult walking around outside our door. Well, tch, my gosh, yeah. you can open a practice anywhere And it was more of a one and done, fix it. There wasn't a lot of recall, but you were busy, right? Because there was a huge demand. Now, it's about 3.2 decayed, missing, filled teeth in an average adult. So the supply and demand is changing. And and now we're at the highest point ever in graduates. It was a little over 6,500 this year, and they're going to add three more dental schools within the next two years. Mm -hmm. And one of them is going to be in El Paso, where the- the idea was well, you know, the people in West Texas, the downtrodden and poor right. people, aren't having service, so we're going to open a practice in El Paso, and of course, these guys are still and gals will still graduate with three or five hundred thousand dollars of the debt; they can't afford to pay uh, everything. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Perfect, perfect reasoning on their part. So, yeah. I, you know, so anyway, so
0: so so even so even with uh, so so our um, our generation, the boomers, um, yeah. Uh, you still don't see a, a big demand f- uh, with with implant dentistry today
1: and uh, well yes how, I, mean, I do much, okay. I do I do I do but it's not a growth industry I mean th- this is like uh what was it 15 years ostriches you know remember we said, we're gonna make all this money so it's gonna be the of here yeah. and and the only <laughs> people that made money were the people that had the ostriches the first and idiot into buying them that's right okay no I know I do think that that implants are a great service and and that you can do it, but if we look at the the demographics of dentists, you know, it used to be cosmetic dentistry was a huge pull, but now everybody does cosmetic dentistry, okay, it used to be a, a deal, a big pull, you know, if we did implants, or you did this, or did that, now more and more people are doing it, so it'll have less impact on your practice, um, but, yeah, I think, you know, it'll continue to be a, a motoring deal, but it's also going to be as common as doing a, a three-surface filling. Technology has changed yeah. ortho. It's changed mm-hmm. endo. It's changed. In, and so if there's fewer decayed Michigan-filled teeth and baby boomers are dying off, then there's going to be less market for that. There will always be a market for it, but it, less. It won't be. Yeah. You know there won't be 50 implant companies out there selling us products. Uh, so yeah, I think everybody ought to be doing their own implants. So so, so Mike, Mike if if, if you uh, if you knew
0: what you knew today about <clears throat> about uh, healthcare dentistry, yep. uh, the debt that the average uh, students coming out with today, if you knew all that and you were you were 22 years old or in your in college, uh, would you would you think twice about uh, going down the, the dental
1: path today? No, but, I, I, you know, you you've, you've set this up like the graduation date is the uh, fulfillment of all my dreams. And, and I don't remember ever hearing somebody walk across that stage, grab that diploma, and jump up and down and say, I can't wait to be average. <laughs> you know, you talked about debt. I mean, yes, the, the average debt is huge. But I find students that get out with less than 100000 and they went to the same school that charged 500000 to get their education. They worked. Mm-hmm. The whole time they worked. I mean, you worked when you were in dental school. Oh, yeah. Didn't you? Yep, I sure worked. I, I worked two jobs, well, actually three. I, I was a waiter three nights a week at the railhead in Dallas, and then I did ground and No, You
0: know what? I that, you know, we both did the railhead. Uh, just at different (laughs) different times yeah 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 yeah, you were what seven years ahead so uh yeah Yeah. i did the whole real real head stand too yeah
1: so so i mean you know we we weren't assuming that debt was a good thing and 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 again we've raised generation people that well this is normal i don't maybe good's the wrong word debt is normal and these people that come out of school without much debt have decided well no I'm, I'm not I'm you know I'm not going to buy into that herd mentality of debt's going to be just you know okay to have that much debt it's interesting Gallup did a, a research it's two years ago where they they looked at school debt seven percent of the school debt was drugs and vacations well wow. I mean I had alcohol under drugs but you know it was it yeah. was you know, it wasn't, it wasn't school, you know, it was living in an apartment that was way above what, I mean, I don't know where you live, but mine was pretty bad, you know, the roaches would move the bed around, (laughs) so I'd wake up facing the different direction. Yeah,
0: yeah, it it is, it is a different, uh, a different group that's, uh, that's growing up in uh, that entitlement uh, has, I think, set this up, as you said, normalized uh, debt is, is there, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, a. i'm difficult. glad
1: I'm glad you said entitlement because I, I think the doctors you know one of the questions you said you were going to ask was uh, and I forgot what it was now but uh, you know I, I think the reason that doctors arrive at 50 plus and and then see that they're not ever going to be able to afford to retire was the result of of kind of a an attitude of, of, of entitlement during their careers when they had money going through their fingers. Mm-hmm. They thought this would never end, that they'd never have cancer, that they'd never have a divorce, that they'd be the one that, you know, hit the home run at 55 and, and you know, uh, whatever. But, it, you know, it, life doesn't work that way. And so we have to start earlier and, and be a little bit more conservative. I, I love that book, The Fulfillment Curve. And uh, you know where it talks about you know survival and and you know uh, even quality stuff, but there gets to be a point on that curve where the fulfillment of what you spend just isn't worth it because you're 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 trading security, uh, you know, a lifetime of of uh, I don't know, you know, a burn rate that would work for you. Uh, yeah. I, again, I. I just got a, a call from a, not a call, but a, a an email this morning, and I was reading it. I, I'm in California, and so I'm a couple of hours, and this guy was telling me, uh, he said, a few years ago, I came away from a dental conference on retirement, convinced that planning was sufficient, that my associate was doing well, that I'd get a relatively good price to sell my business. Uh, I liked your words and thinking. I had a great relationship with a potential seller. The sale went through very well for me holding an employment contract for two years with the new buyer but at the end of two years I was let go (laughs) surprise (laughs) in fact I tell doctors that want to stay on I said yeah about six weeks they're going to hate you (laughs) yeah Uh, exactly because my written crack was only for two years employment with a gentleman's agreement that I could continue as long as I wanted Mm. (laughs) so maybe I did not cover all my base I didn't listen to all that you said my covenant not to compete was valued at 5000 It was for two years. Truth is, I only had a million in retirement. Hmm. I need now to work more. You've heard this part of my story before. So now I'm faced with changing marketplace in a state that is letting in corporate dentistry. He's in North Carolina. As if that hadn't been going on for 20 years. Sure. So how do I start a niche practice? Hmm. You know, well, this guy's just yeah. crazy. Yes. Say Crown & Bridge is a general dentist at age 65 and relatively good wow. health with a precious wife who still spends as if we were, uh, as if it were therapeutic, Jeez. uh, you know, it just goes on and on and on and yeah. I said, why don't you just call me? Yeah. And so I, you know, I'm hoping that your book will address the, uh, the reality of, you know, transitions, uh, that there's a limited pool of buyers out there. Uh, you know, uh, your practice. I mean, Part of the limitation is going to be a lender that will lend on it. Uh, does your practice have an upside to the buyer? I mean,
0: right. is it,
1: can they make it better? Uh, is the price fair? And I think what we're going to see, as the prices have climbed, I think they will crash. I mean, the minute, you know, I, I just don't think these people that work for corporations realize that profits don't go to employees, which they are they go to the stockholders. Mm-hmm. And, and so at some point, just like it happened in medicine, it happened in vision and pharmacies. You're just a glorified worker. And, you know, I, I talked to a lot of young doctors and I was trying to tell the reality to this young lady that wanted to start a practice in, in uh, Alabama. And she said, well, then why should I even want to own it if there's all these risks? Well, there's always risks, you know, I mean, that's, you know, what can I say? There's risk in being an employee. You get fired. That's right. Uh, so, you know, I, and no matter what the price is, I've rarely seen, I, I love these doctors go, well, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to uh, take my practice. They're going to sell it eight times EBITDA. Mm-hmm. I said, it's never happened, ever happened that that's happened. I mean, Heartland's considered a junk company by Bloomberg and, and really anybody that looks at it. When KKR bought it, it went from seven times debt to earnings. To almost nine times debt, wow. they couldn't. Wow. Even, they couldn't even borrow the money using traditional borrowing to buy Heartland. When these big companies start losing their, you know, money funders and people are interested in buying these things because they think it's a commodity and realize that they're not making the money that they had. That that Heartland, even though it's a huge company, has never grown a practice. It's only grown through acquisitions and mergers, which is just false, you know, yep. credit on a you know, it just on a spreadsheet, that money will go away. And then, then it'll get really scary. Those prices for your practice will drop drastically. And that's why I liked the, the deal of fractional sales is that I could ensure that I get top price. I was still there and engaged. I wasn't near the end of my career at all. So it was, you know, I was still producing more every time I added somebody So. But yeah, I think it's going to get a little scary, and I feel sorry for these people. I'm glad you're helping them. I wish I'd found you twenty or thirty years ago, because I did. I you know I did the thing that you said. You know I I saved enough money that it's a depletion strategy. Yep. I just went okay. Yep. I'll just make enough money. I never thought about cash flow. I just said sure. I mean, I don't need the cash flow if I have enough money. Sure. Yep. You know, it's, it's like, but that's such a hard game to win. So hard, especially today. Yeah, yeah.
0: very, very much hard. Very hard. Very hard. Well, hey, thanks. Thanks so much for your okay. time. I, I, no, you're, you're, the, you're the guy I turn to who, who has uh, boots on the ground experience in, in so many
1: arenas. Uh, you've done it, uh, and you, then you've been over the, over the shoulders of so many that yeah. you have uh, been involved with.